Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Erin O'Toole. Before we get started with today's show, I just want to take a second to remind you that this show is only here because of financial support from listeners just like you. 2020 was a hard year for people financially, and many of those same problems came with us into the new year. We know that not everyone can afford to donate right now, but if you can, it helps make it possible for everyone to keep listening to Colorado Edition. It's very easy to support this station and this show. You'll find more information on how to donate at KUNC.org. And thanks so much. Now, here's today's show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll learn more about this weekend's mass drive through vaccine clinic and how it may change the state's approach to the vaccine rollout. And we'll have the latest on a program that provides safe parking for people who live in their cars. It's our safe spot, you know, it's our home right now. These safe lots really truly are just a temporary stepping stone for someone. Those stories and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. State health officials are considering changes to the dial system it uses to place counties under different levels of coronavirus restrictions. In a press conference on Monday, the state's chief medical officer, Dr. Eric France, said it makes sense to give counties more flexibility as Colorado enters a new phase of the pandemic. We're in a place where Healthcare workers and are most vulnerable, are most likely to die or be hospitalized, are becoming vaccinated. And, and so it's a different place than six months ago when the dial was built in partnership with, with communities. The state is currently accepting feedback on the revised dial and could make changes this week. Now, an update on Colorado's vaccine rollout. Over the weekend, UC Health held the state's first mass drive-through clinic. 10,000 seniors got their first vaccine doses from the comfort of their cars in the parking lot of Coors Field. KUNC's Matt Bloom was there, and he's with us now. Matt, first, can you describe what the clinic was like? What did you see? The entire parking lot was buzzing with activity, cars, uh, white tents with staff walking around everywhere. If you can imagine uh, some of the larger COVID testing sites we've seen over the past year, it had that same sort of feel. But it was very controlled, very fluid. Um, and overall, organizers were really happy with how it went. I spoke with some of the participants, including Linda Amato, who's 72, she was with her husband, um, and here she is getting her shot through her car window. All done. You're not even bleeding. You don't need a Band-Aid. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Bless you. How's it feel? Hey, it feels great. I'm so, I'm so happy. It's just a wonderful, wonderful day for us, that's for sure. Thank you. <laughs> I want to cry. <laughs> just, uh, there you go, sir. Such a relief. To, to be on our way to, you know, getting getting back to normal. The couple is hoping to see their grandchildren more after they get their second doses and take a long delayed vacation after they get their second shot. So all in all, it was uh, definitely a really uplifting couple of days during this clinic. There did happen to be a small protest from some folks who were opposed to getting vaccinated, but they didn't disrupt the flow at all. Well, Matt, how did all of this come together? And uh, can we expect to see more of these? 
This was the effort uh, of several local and state health departments, as well as UC Health, all pooling their vaccine supply together. They even had to build an on-site pharmacy to store the vaccines at the right temperature. So it was a huge logistical undertaking. I spoke with Dr. Richard Zane, who helped run the big show. He says part of the reason that they wanted to do this was to show other hospitals in Colorado and across the country how to set something like this up. One of the the products of this is not just having vaccinated 10,000 people, but really having developed a detailed playbook for other states, other health systems who want to do a clinic like this. The only problem is that we still don't have enough supply of vaccines to do these mass clinics every weekend. We would love, love to do more of these types of clinics, but we need more vaccine in order to do that. This really was the ability to test and say this is feasible, we can do this, it is not going to be like what you saw on TV in Florida where it was just chaos, um, or in LA. This is organized, people are not waiting for a long period of time, everybody has an appointment, uh, but in order to do these we just need more vaccine. That sort of echoes the struggle that we've heard even in smaller clinics, again, that they still aren't receiving enough supply from the federal government and the state to keep up with demand. Governor Jared Polis was at the clinic over the weekend. Did he have anything to say about expanding the state supply and expanding this mass clinic model to serve other communities going forward? He's hopeful that the new administration will deliver on its promise to get states more supply in the coming months. Polis said that in the meantime, though, they're looking at how to replicate this in some of Colorado's larger cities. He didn't offer many specifics, dates, locations, though, um, but he did say this would be an important part of the rollout process in the coming months. We can do some of this. It can't, it can't replace, because we're a big state, uh, small community clinics, uh, you know, you gotta be where people are, and uh, you know, we don't want our uh, 70 and 85 year olds have to drive two hours to Coors Field, but certainly there's a large population right near Denver, uh, but certainly the population of the Denver metro area allows for this kind of large site, which is currently doing about 5,000 a day, and we might even be able to increase that if we get more vaccines in. Larimer County's public health director, Tom Gonzalez, has also mentioned that he and uh, hospitals up here in NOCO are looking at doing something similar, maybe at the ranch in the coming months. But again, details are still being worked out. One more thing, how should people stay informed about all this, and where can they get information about when these are happening and, and how to get signed up? I would say first, pay attention to where the state is at in its vaccine plan. Right now, we're only uh, vaccinating officially people 70 and up and healthcare workers and first responders. But next week, we're actually going to be expanding into another group, people 65 and older and people working in education. So teachers, bus drivers, childcare workers. So if you haven't already, uh, go to your local county's public health website. They've all posted a list of local providers who are accepting patients info for wait lists. You can get your name on one of those if you're looking for an appointment and find out when a mass clinic might be in your community. Okay, KUNC's Matt Bloom, thanks so much for the update. You're welcome. Workers stocking shelves in grocery store aisles and those on production lines are still at risk of getting sick while they wait in the vaccine line. Tomorrow on the show, we'll take a look at what companies are doing to prepare for that and what happens when workers reject doses. Thank you. 
Some of Colorado's small rural counties have taken a different approach to getting the vaccine to their most vulnerable residents. Instead of a mass event to get thousands of people immunized, some health officials are finding creative ways to work around bottlenecks in the distribution system. Ray Ellen Bichelle has written about this for Kaiser Health News, and she joins us now. Ray, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. So first, could you just remind us of how the vaccine distribution has been set up, uh, you know, for people in the first phase and in particular the residents of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities? Yeah. Back in November, every long-term care facility, so that includes skilled nursing centers, assisted living, had a choice. Did they want to get their vaccine from CVS or from Walgreens. And this was through this federal pharmacy partnership program. In some states, there were additional pharmacies other than Walgreens and CVS, but in Colorado, it was those two. So long-term care facilities were able to choose, uh, enrolled in the program, and then vaccination um, started. uh, Earliest it started was really uh, late December. And so there have been a few hiccups with that, namely that things have just gotten bogged down. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many different issues. There's the issue that this is, logistically speaking, just a massive undertaking, um, unprecedented undertaking. There's been issues with, uh, as we've all heard, I'm sure, uh, different requirements for freezers and storage and the speed with which you have to use up the shots before you have to, before they go to waste, essentially. And then there's also been uh, issues of communication. At some Long-term care facilities didn't sign up for the program. There are reports of others that uh, thought that Walgreens was going to be their provider, but actually it was CVS or vice versa. And so I think all of this has been moving very fast uh, on a very large scale and it's high stakes. I think it's understandable that there would be a few snags here and there, um, but some health officials in a handful of some of the rural areas are kind of taking matters into their own hands as far as getting the vaccine. What did you learn about how they're working around this? I was really interested to talk with folks at long-term care facilities and county health departments in the rural edges of Colorado. And one of the themes of those conversations, and this was in, um, you know, place in on the northern edge of the state, one on uh, the eastern edge, a couple on the southern edge. The theme of these conversations was that in December, they knew the vaccine was coming, but some of them were like, we still don't have dates from Walgreens or CVS. And also, we're really far away from those pharmacies. How would this work? And there were other questions of, you know, typically... Um, Often rural areas get left for last or get left behind. So the the there was this concern that these residents who are really sitting ducks with COVID-19 would not get the vaccine as quickly as they could. And so what happened in several locations is that the um, either through the efforts of the long-term care facilities themselves or from the efforts of the county health departments, they said, you know what, we're going to just figure out our own way to do this. We, we will redirect vaccines from the county allocation, and we'll make it happen because we're just not sure what's going to go on with the federal partnership, uh, federal pharmacy partnership. It seems like we've mostly heard about difficulty with getting the vaccines in some of the more remote areas, you know, that people would have to travel these long distances. So it's just encouraging to see they didn't just accept that. They they went around it. Why does this work well in rural counties uh, rather than like in the metro areas? Yeah, I mean, I think early on we saw so many headlines about like, 
well, for the Pfizer vaccine, you need like a very special freezer or a super cold freezer. How is that going to work in a bunch of these rural areas? There were all these things that we were hearing that really made it seem like rural areas were going to be really disadvantaged in terms of vaccine rollout. And that's not to say there aren't challenges. There certainly are. But I felt like what allowed these facilities to get their residents vaccinated so effectively outside of the federal partnership was that they're they're smaller communities. They know each other. They know that, you know, in Route County, there are two long-term care facilities and 14 out of the 19 COVID deaths there were in those two facilities. That's known. And so I think that that allowed the county health departments to reprioritize and to to find ways and get people on board with those changes. Well, I want to talk to you about the Haven. That's a, a facility that you feature in your article, which is in Route County. They have gotten at least the first doses of the vaccine there. What has getting vaccinated meant for the residents who live there? It's incremental but meaningful changes, is I think how I would put it. Technically speaking, from like a regulation standpoint, getting vaccinated doesn't mean that you can like go back to pre-pandemic, you know, the before times. It's not like the return of life is normal. Right. Um, but it does mean that there are some things that can change that do make a big difference for the lives of residents. I spoke to a couple residents at the Haven and one of them was really excited to be able to gather around the piano with masks on still, but to play piano and sing together. Like she really missed that. Several were really excited about this um, field trip that they're planning for February to go get a private screening at a movie theater nearby. So they'd all have masks on, you know, no one else would be in the theater, um, but they would get an outing that they haven't, they haven't been able to do something like that in a year. Something that came up over and over again in conversations is just this overall feeling of lightness that people really just haven't felt in such a long time. And on that on that topic, um, one county public health director that I spoke to um, in a rural part of the state said, you know, finally, it feels like the light at the end of the tunnel isn't a train. You know, it's like actually the end of the tunnel visible, which I thought was really compelling. Ray Ellen Bichelle is a reporter for Kaiser Health News. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The death of George Floyd last May sparked nationwide protests against systemic racism and police brutality. It also got us looking into the number of people killed during interactions with the police in the Mountain West. In fact, our region has the highest rate of fatal encounters in the country. It's an issue we're going to spend the next few days on, starting with Nate Hedgie, who has more for KUNC. And a note to our listeners, this story contains the sound of gunshots. Last summer, parks and streets across the country filled with the sound of violins. They were played by people protesting the death of 23-year-old violinist Elijah McLean. The young black man was walking home from a convenience store when he was stopped by the police after someone called, saying he looked, quote, sketchy. After a tussle, police placed him in a chokehold and he lost consciousness. Give us more. Give us some more units. We're fighting them. 
McLean was five foot six, weighed 140 pounds, and he was a chronic asthmatic. And when he briefly regained consciousness, police claimed he had, quote, crazy strength. Paramedics on the scene gave him the powerful sedative ketamine. He had a cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital, and he died days later. McLean was just one of more than 1,100 people killed during interactions with police in the Mountain West since 2015. That's according to our analysis of data from the website Fatal Encounters. It counts these deaths by tracking media stories online. It's all Google alerts. That's founder and former Nevada journalist D. Brian Burgart. He began tracking these cases nearly a decade ago after he had one of those aha moments. I was driving home from work Friday night and I just saw this scene of chaos. Dozens of cop cars parked haphazardly and I, I just got a feeling that either a cop had killed somebody or somebody had killed a cop. And as a newspaper editor, this sparked his curiosity. How often do police kill civilians? And it did not take me very long to figure out that nobody really knew. The federal government does have a homicide database, but reporting those incidents is voluntary and many law enforcement agencies don't participate. So Burgart eventually figured the best way to track this data was to gather stories from local media outlets. He estimates he missed a few cases. But whatever we have is twice as good as anything that was ever released by the government. According to the Mountain West News Bureau's analysis of that data, the fatal encounter rate in our region is more than one and a half times the national average. There are a lot of theories as to why this is, but the most common one boils down to this. Guns. Guns. The gun culture that's here. It really is as simple as guns. That's Burkhart, along with law enforcement experts Gabriel Schwartz, Robin Engel, and Justin Nix. They all say that in places where there's a high level of household gun ownership, there's also often a high level of people killed by police. Police officers are also more likely to be victims here. Justin Nix from the University of Nebraska, Omaha, explains. Officers from day one are trained and socialized to anticipate danger and be prepared for any interaction to potentially go sideways and present a lethal threat to their own safety. And we own more guns here than most anywhere else in the country. And Nix posits another idea, access to trauma centers after someone's shot. It's just a little bit farther on average to trauma care and minutes matter. And so when you're looking at data that only capture those deaths, it might lead you to believe that officers are using deadly force at a higher rate when maybe they're using deadly force at similar rates and it's just people are dying at a higher rate. And then there's this. Something like one in four people shot and killed by police displayed signs of or were known to have a mental illness. Many states in the Mountain West rank among the worst when it comes to the prevalence of mental illness and access to care. This includes Utah, where, in September, Golda Barton called 911. I was asked if we need a mental health worker. Um, it's super important because I, I really, um, he's sick. Barton's 13-year-old autistic son was having a crisis. She warned that he might be carrying a BB or pellet gun. She wasn't sure. She also told the operator that her father had been shot by police last year, that her son saw it happen. Now he hated cops. When the police arrived, what occurred next was recorded on their body cameras. We need him to go to the hospital. I need him to go to the hospital. I cannot get in there on my own. The police found her son in the backyard and he took off running. A chase ensued. That's the officer shooting the boy 11 times. Barton's son was wounded but survived. He was unarmed. 
Salt Lake City's mayor said in a statement soon after the shooting that she was, quote, heartbroken and frustrated by the incident. The family has filed suit against the Salt Lake City Police Department in U.S. District Court. It's a bleak picture. Gabriel Schwartz tracked police violence as a doctoral student at Harvard University. He says overall, the United States is a perfect storm of mental health issues, guns, inequality. And police are much more often armed with guns and other military equipment. He says many of the solutions posited by law enforcement, more body cameras, a more diverse police force, implicit bias training, on average, don't seem to work. Put all this together and... It's a disaster. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie. Our series, Elevated Risk, Police Violence in the Mountain West, continues tomorrow with a look at the number of indigenous people killed during encounters with the police. You can find more stories from the Mountain West News Bureau at our website, KUNC.org. Back in August, we aired a story about a new program in Longmont that provides safe parking for people who live in their cars. Now that program is expanding. KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reported the original story, and she's here now to give us an update. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Henry. Before we talk about the expansion of the safe parking program, can you remind us what it is? Sure. Safe Lot was created by Hope Homeless Outreach in Longmont. It opened last summer at a local church and provides safe overnight parking in a designated lot from 6 at night to 8 in the morning. The lot has room for eight vehicles, and participants, or parkers as the Hope staff calls them, get daily breakfast and dinner. They can use the bathrooms and shower. There's a community room. A Hope case manager is also on site to help parkers connect to social services, resources, and help them with their general needs. Safe Lot allows families, couples, and pets, which is different from traditional shelters that mainly serve individual adults. During my reporting, I met Safe Lot Parker Samantha Marshall and her husband Brandon. They were living in their gray two-door Scion touring coupe with three dogs. Here's a clip from the original story. Samantha is showing me how they all fit in the small car. This is Jaxie. That's our German Shepherd. Two of her dogs sleep in the back seat. I don't know if you can see in there. That's his, him and Lily's spot. Marshall, her husband Brandon, and their third dog Muffin hunker down in the front. And then this is my spot We had where they have bucket seats. We have to have pillows in the seats or your butt's going to hurt. Before the Marshalls got accepted into the program, they stayed in random parking lots or parks, but that quickly became a hassle. Samantha said the Safe Lot program has given them hope. It's our safe spot. You know, it's our home right now. The Safe Lot can accommodate eight vehicles. It's currently at capacity, and there's a waiting list to get a spot. So how is HOPE expanding the program? HOPE is creating a hub model, and the original site is the hub. SafeLot is opening auxiliary lots at two additional churches in Longmont, and each will have a capacity of five vehicles. These new lots will have safe parking and porta-potties for the parkers, but they will go to the original site for meals, showers, and to meet with the case manager. Joseph Zanovich is the executive director of HOPE. He says the hub model is an efficient way to run the program and allows them to expand it more easily. For the cost of, in a sense, one lot, I can have 10 lots really in a, in a hub area. Because as long as they're all close together and our overnight staff can connect with one another, uh, connect with participants, and folks are able to access the hub, it allows us to expand really for the price of a porta potty and an and open participant church that's willing to let us be there. So yes, it, it, it's great from a cost standpoint. We really try to keep costs low. 
The Longmont Auxiliary lots are opening this week, and Hope is also planning a Boulder Safe lot, which should open mid-spring. And what's next for Safe Lot? Does Hope plan to expand their hub model maybe beyond Boulder County? Hope only serves Boulder County, but they are working with the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative to help other Safe Lots in the Denver metro area get up and running. But here's the thing about Safe Lots. They are designed to be a Band-Aid, a temporary solution. The idea is to give people living in their cars a safe place to sleep while they get the resources and assistance they need to get back on their feet. Joseph says his goal is not to open 100 safe lots. It's to get people into permanent housing. But we are dependent on a housing market that is not not too kind for folks making minimum wage or even just a little bit more. And so with that in mind, you know, really, the next step is looking at how can we increase housing, affordable housing um, for folks that really do need it so that these safe lots really truly are just a temporary stepping stone for someone to get into a better place. He said the program is working. Parkers have successfully left and, quote, graduated to a better place in their life. When someone leaves a safe lot, space opens up for the next person. So what happened with Samantha Marshall and their dogs and her husband? Are they still in the safe lot program? I asked Joseph for an update on the Marshalls when we talked. He said Sam is in cosmetology school and Brandon is working. They are still in the program because even though they are saving money, housing is just too expensive, which is a problem for a lot of people experiencing homelessness. What they are experiencing is what a lot of folks in this situation are experiencing, that even if we were able to give them a boost with a couple months rent, they still have not made enough to be able to cover the month-to-month rent. But I am happy to report that a couple days after I talked to Joseph, he sent me a text message which said the Marshalls found a place to live and are moving this week. Great news. KUNC's Stephanie Daniel, thank you for the update on the Marshalls and the Safe Lot program. Thanks, Henry. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, a closer look at getting COVID-19 vaccines to essential workers faster and how people turning down the shots will impact efforts to reach herd immunity. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Adam Reyes, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.